You may be seated. Thank you very much. The Grand Canyon in Arizona is one of the most spectacular sites in all the world. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon before? Okay, several of you have. I grew up in Arizona, so went and saw it many times. It's 277 miles long, 18 miles wide at its widest point, and over a mile deep, 6,000 feet down to the, the Colorado River below. By the way, that little river did not dig that canyon. There's no way that that happened. Out in Arizona, we would joke about all the tourists who would come every year. Say, oh, they've come out here to go see the, quote, the big hole in the ground. And I guess that's one way you could put it, right? The Grand Canyon is a big hole in the ground. Well, what an understatement, right? To to refer to the Grand Canyon, which if you've been there, it's absolutely awe-inspiring. It's just just a hole in the ground, Right? It's like, oh, yeah, Christmas is a little, a little holiday or, or something like that. It's, it's a, sort of an understatement. Well, we're sort of at risk of understatement when we come to celebrating Christmas. This is so familiar. By the way, I love Christmas time. Don't you love Christmas? The, I mean, I love the colors and the lights and the Christmas trees and the music. I mean, the, the whole nine yards, I absolutely love it. The presents, like, that's, that's awesome. By the way, if you want presents, I've got a great book list if you want to see that, what I want. But uh, just throwing that out there, I, I love Christmas time. And every year as Christians, we have this, this annual reminder in the calendar for us to pause and think about the incarnation, by the incarnation referring to, to, to Jesus coming to this earth, taking on flesh to, to redeem us. But if we're not careful, we're at risk of calling sort of the Grand Canyon the big hole in the ground. Oh, it's just the baby in the manger, Jesus coming into this world. Isn't it so cute? Look at the shepherds, look at the wise men. And by the way, that's historic fact. It's worthy of our contemplation. But we're, we're at risk of regarding this great Grand Canyon of truth as being little more than a, quote, big hole in the ground. These things are true, not just in the sense that the Grand Canyon is deep, but they're true in the, the richness. So if you ever peer over the rim of the Grand Canyon, you'll notice all of these little sub-canyons. And you go from, you know, Yavapai Point over to a different lookout. It looks different. There's things that you will see from a different standpoint that you wouldn't see from another or you can drive all the way around, go to the north rim that's just like 10 miles away as the crow flies, but like 300 miles of driving, and you get a different perspective. Or if you decide to be crazy and hike the Grand Canyon and start going down the trail, and you look back, you see something different from the bottom than you would see from the top. The truth of scriptures, Scripture in many ways is like that. It is so rich. It is so deep. There's not just one perspective where it's like, ah, there, I just took it all in. No, it's like the Grand Canyon where every angle you look at it, you see something different. You see something richer. You see a depth that you hadn't noticed before. It's typical at Christmas for us to step back and and look at the story of Christmas, and that is a worthy thing to do. But this year what we're doing is we're kind of walking around the canyon. We're looking at different perspectives. We're, We're trying to notice realities of the incarnation that we maybe have not considered before or given much thought to. Hebrews 2, as I started studying it this week, I just realized this is such a rich passage. And originally, I'll tell you, my plan was to preach just the last four verses. But then I'm like, no, to get the last four verses, I've got to back up and get some verse 10. And I'm like, well, to get verse 10, I've got to back up to verse 5. So you're going to get the whole truckload of truth today. We'll be here till about 2 p.m. I literally spent half of the day yesterday cutting this down from 6,000 words to 2,000 words. So hopefully those words I cut out do not sneak their way back in here today. Um, I promise I'll try to get you out of here by noon. Um, It is a rich text. This, in my view, is the richest explanation of what is going on at Christmas. The the richest explanation we can find anywhere in Scripture. So let's join 
The writer of Hebrews, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. Most would guess Paul. Um, My hunch is just looking at the way this is written, that it's Luke who's recording maybe something that Paul said. Luke and Paul hung out a lot. But we really don't know. We don't know who the author is. We do know it is Holy Spirit inspired. And the point of Hebrews is this. Jesus is better than. It's written to a bunch of Jewish Christians who are facing persecution and are thinking, you know, maybe Christianity is not quite worth it. We're not quite, quite ready to fully commit to this. It's easier to just kind of claim Judaism, to go back under the law. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do it. What you have in Jesus is so good, it is so glorious, it is so much better. And that word better shows up over and over again. Chapter 1 makes the argument, look at verse 4, he is made so much better than the angels. And angels are awesome, they're powerful, but he's saying Jesus is better than the angels. He'll come on later on to say that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the priesthood of the Old Testament. Jesus is better than the tabernacle. Jesus is the better sacrifice. All of those things we read about in the Old Testament, all of them are pointing to Jesus. Those are the shadows. Jesus is the reality. If you've got the thing that is so much better, why would you go back to the shadows? Right? Why would you go back to the, 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 the preview of the movie when you have the actual story? Why would you go back to the thing that is looking forward when you have the thing that is being anticipated? So that's the argument of Hebrews. And and chapter 10 summarizes, if this is all true about Jesus, it says, let us draw near with a true heart. Let's get close to him. Let's worship him. Then it says this, let us hold fast our profession. It might cost you to be a Christian, but Hebrews is saying what you have in Jesus is so much better than comfort. It's so much better than than, than just empty rituals. What you have in Jesus is better, so don't let go of it. And then it says, if that's true, let us exhort one another. One of the realities of this is if Jesus is the better than, the infinitely greater one, we ought to get together every week as much as we possibly can to encourage each other about that reality. By the way, I'm so glad you're here with us at, at church this morning. Encourage you to come back tonight. Encourage you to come back on Wednesday. Encourage you to reach out to family and friends and other members and encourage them to be here because this is, what, this is why God gave us church is so we could remind each other, that we could exhort one another daily that what we have in Jesus is better lest we wander off after one of the alluring substitutes of the world. So with that in mind, I think the call here is for us to worship and treasure Jesus. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. Worship and treasure Jesus. And this passage is going to give us some really, really good reasons. Look at what he did in his incarnation, proving that he's better than the angels and that he is worthy of all our worship. So God wants you, God wants us to come and worship Jesus. This passage is going to give us four absolutely glorious truths about the incarnation, about Christmas, that demand and spur on our worship. If you walk out of here this morning and you don't necessarily have, well, here's five things I'm going to change in my life this week, that's okay. If you walk out of here this morning, however, saying, wow, Jesus is awesome. What God has done for us in Christ is awesome. That is mission accomplished. Our goal this morning is to truly worship. All right, so let's dig into these four glorious truths, this sort of walking at these vantage points around this Grand Canyon of truth. The first one is this. Jesus came at Christmas to restore us. What did he accomplish in his incarnation? What, what, what was the, the point of it? Well, verses 5 to 9 show that he came to restore us, to restore man's lost status. So look at verse 5. For under the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, wherever we speak. Okay, big argument. He's saying Jesus is better than the angels. By the way, he says angels are not going to rule over the restored world. Jesus is going to return one day, establish a kingdom on this earth for a thousand years, and then lead into an eternal kingdom. Angels aren't going to be put in charge of that. 
Rather, humanity will be. That's his point in verse 5. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him, that is man, with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. This is a quote from Psalm 8. That's what Raymer read so well for us earlier in the service. So he's going to say, okay, God did not give angels this place of prominence over God's world. He gave this to humanity. Now, Psalm 8, in its original context, we read it earlier, the psalmist is looking, saying, look at the creation that God's made. Okay, you go outside on a clear, calm night, and you look up at the stars. You ever do that? You're out on the wilderness somewhere. You're up out on a mountain. You're camping. There's no light pollution, and you just look at the stars. And you begin to think a little bit about, like, man, I remember some stuff from eighth grade science and, like, light years and the size of these things, the number of them. And you're forced to ask that same question. What is man that thou art mindful of him? You stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and you feel really, really small. The psalmist is saying, compared to this creation, here we are, we are just, I'm one of seven billion plus people on a smaller sized planet. Somewhere out in the solar system, we're not even the center of the solar system. The solar system's spinning around a, you know, a, a moderately sized star out on one of the bands of the Milky Way, which is one of billions of galaxies in this expansive universe. We are simply a speck on a speck of a speck. All things being equal, why would God care about us? Why would God care about humanity? He says, though that is true, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest, that you, you, you're concerned about him? He says, though, though man does not seem to be very much, look at verse 7. You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. So this is looking back to the original creation. Remember Genesis 1, God makes man in his own image. God gives man dominion over the creation. This is what God originally intended for Adam and Eve for humanity. What this is outlining for us, if you want to take take some notes here under Jesus came at Christmas to restore us, is here's man's status declared. Here's what God originally intended for for humanity, for his image bearers. He intended that we be just below the angels. Here's the difference. Angels are incorporeal. We are corporeal. We have a body. We're sort of limited in time and space. Angels can can move around. There's the difference. But just a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Man, given this incredible dignity, crowned, speaking of authority, honor, speaking of dignity and worth, made in the image of God. You read back in Genesis 1, you find out God intended for Adam and Eve to be his vice regents ruling over his creation. So here's God, and then he says, right under me is Adam and Eve ruling over all creation. Man was created to rule everything. That's the point there. Look at the end of verse 7. You set him over the works of thy hands and has put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8 unpacked that for us. All of creation meant to be dominated and ruled and organized and used by mankind. That's man's status declared. This is what God originally intended for Adam and Eve and for those made in his image. But here's my question. Is that what we experience? Is that, is that what we see in our world? Look at the end of verse 8 uh, of our text. Look back there in, in, in Hebrews 2, verse 8. For in that he has put all things in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. In other words, this is all-inclusive. It's not just, well, just the animal kingdom. No, God's saying, I intended for man to rule everything. But now the, the last clause... But now, we see not yet all things put under him. He says, okay, right now, we look at our world around us, that lofty ideal is manifestly not true. You see, man's status that is declared here is actually man's status that was lost. We read verse 8's lofty language, we should say, that's not the way it is. 
That's not the way it is. We don't rule over cancer. We don't rule over cold fronts. We don't rule over hurricanes or over climate. And most of all, we do not rule over death. Man's rule has been severely limited by this thing we call sin. That's what God intended, man ruling over everything. It was supposed to be God, the man leading his wife, ruling over creation together. What happens in the fall? Instead of Adam listening to God, Eve listening to Adam, and the serpent listening to Adam and Eve, that gets reversed. The serpent puts himself at the top. Eve listens to to the voice of the serpent. Adam listens to the voice of Eve, and everybody ignores God. It gets turned on its head, and sin enters the world. And guess what God had said? The day you eat of the fruit thereof, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. So something came into God's creation that did not exist before. Death, decay, suffering. Man's authority is now severely limited. Man has to fight. He says, by the sweat of your brow, you'll produce food. You see, instead of ruling creation, the creation rather rules us quite often. We have to fight to get the ground to produce crops. We have to labor to bring order out of chaos. We have to struggle against the elements and the continual onslaught of disorder. That, by the way, is probably what most of you did the last 40 hours this week, is getting things that tend towards chaos and making them more orderly. Or you work in the medical field helping people who are, are, are facing the reality of death and mortality and giving them a, a measure of life and healing. Everything we do is is fighting against this reality. It's here because of sin, because we are fallen, because we are rebels against God, because of what happened back in the Garden of Eden. This glorious status that was intended for mankind was lost. Now, the image of God's not completely destroyed. Man still has dignity and worth. This dominion's not completely taken away. But the crown is tarnished. The image of God is marred. Our will is now enslaved to sin. Our hearts are now bent away from God. And every one of us is born into this world with a sin nature. And every one of us is born into this world on our way to die. For the day you're born, it's one day closer to our death. What we experience quite simply, we, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. Now, there's a little word of hope at the end of verse 8 is that word not yet. There's a little whisper of hope at the end of verse 8 that it will not always be so. Man's status, so glorious, has been lost. We don't yet see it restored, which means God is on the way of bringing it back. So how is it that God is going to restore that status? Through Jesus coming into this world at Christmas. See, this is so much more than the baby's born into the manger and so he could live. One of the reasons Jesus came, one of the reasons why Christmas is so important is Christmas is an essential step in this process of God fulfilling what he promised to Adam and Eve. You'll rule everything perfectly. Sin happens. You're not ruling everything perfectly. Jesus comes to restore what was lost. Isn't that awesome? That is so much more than just "Ah, the big hole in the ground. But wow, that's so much more than maybe. Have you ever thought that what Jesus was doing at Christmas was restoring what was lost in the Garden of Eden? What's happening in that stable? What's happening in that manger? What's happening with those shepherds is God saying, it will not always be so, and I am going to restore. So notice verse 8 says, we do not see everything under man's feet. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus. So we don't yet see a remade heaven and earth. We do not yet see man ruling over death and cancer and sickness and all of those things. But we do see Jesus. But we see, here's literally the word order in the Greek. But we see him who was made a little lower than the angels, Jesus. He kind of holds back on that, like, who do we see? Okay, we don't see man ruling, but we do see Jesus. Now, what he says does in verse 9 is he takes Psalm 8 that was originally about Adam, and he says it's actually all about Jesus. Now, that wasn't apparent when... Psalm 8 was written, but here he is writing from the other side saying, the way that God's going to keep that promise 
isn't through us struggling and achieving, trying to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Rather, it's going to be restored through Jesus coming. There's important theology in the New Testament of Jesus being the second Adam. The first Adam comes representing all of humanity. He falls because he's representing all of humanity, right? Humanity falls. That's why we all die, even though we didn't sin in the Garden of Eden like Adam did. We, we take his guilt and we, we, we inherit his nature. Jesus comes as a second Adam, a second representative, not so much for everyone, but for everyone who believes in him. And there is a new humanity in Jesus, and through his work, he's bringing us to glory. Pretty awesome, right? So man's status declared, man's status lost. Now here's man's status restored in verse 9. But we do see him who was made a little lower than the angels. Notice how that's, that's pulling back from Psalm 8. Man was made a little lower than the angels. Because of, that word for the suffering of death is because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So we see a couple of facts about Jesus. We see Jesus incarnate, made a little lower than the angels, the one who created the angels, the one who rules over the angels, the one who is better than the angels, takes a, for a brief period of time a status lower than the angels. That word a little lower than could also be for a short time, be rendered that way. For a short time, a little, for 33 years, walked this earth, limited himself. Here's Jesus fulfilling the promises of Psalm 8. So how is Jesus going to restore the lost status? By being incarnate. Here's why this is important. God made that original promise to whom? To man. So who's going to have to restore it? A man. Right? An angel can't come and restore a promise that was made to man. Uh, Jesus sort of coming as a disembodied spirit. No, he has to come into this world as man to restore the promise that was made to man. The Jesus we see is one made a little lower than the angels. This is one of the things I love about Christmas is we're, we're forced to face the mystery of the incarnation head on. Jesus born in a stinking manger. All of the messiness and pain and suffering and blood and dirt that goes on with, with birth in a stable the Son of God entering the world. Here he is, a little helpless baby crying and going through all the process of being a baby. The baby we see, the, the, the Jesus we see is Jesus incarnate, born in a manger, wriggling in that manger, an impoverished boy in Nazareth, one who possesses real, genuine humanity, and he must to be able to restore this. So we see his humiliation, made a little lower than the angels, and then we see him crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. That phrase, for the suffering of death, goes with that word crowned. So because he suffered, he's crowned. Where else do we see that? Philippians 2. He humbled himself, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him. Because he goes to the cross, because he suffers, he is now crowned with glory and honor as the resurrected, exalted king. Achieving what was lost in the fall. Adam and Eve, this crown of glory and honor, lost in the fall. Jesus, by passing through death and by rising again from the dead, reclaims the crown that was lost. And all of this is done so that by the grace of God, he should taste of death for every man. To restore man's lost status, Jesus has to defeat death. To die, he's got to be human. So here he comes into this world so that he could taste death for every man. Now you think taste is, well, just a little, you know, you're going through Sam's Club and you get a little taste, just a little, little taste, it's not the full meal. That's not the sense of this word. This word taste is a metaphor to say fully experience. Jesus really died. 
He truly died on the cross, and he died on the cross by God's grace, because of God's favor, and he tasted death for every man. For every man, for all humanity. He's a propitiation, not just for our sins, but first John says, but also for the sins of the whole world. He dies for all. He dies for all of humanity. So here he is incarnate so he can die for humanity. And one day, Jesus is going to return. Here he is, the exalted, the exalted man. He's restored man's lost status. And one day he's going to come back to this world and make it realized on this planet. So right now, yes, he sits and rules as king. One day he's going to come back and exert that rule on this earth. He's going to one day come back and establish a kingdom on this earth. And what God promised in the Garden of Eden that was lost in the fall, will be truly realized. Paradise that was lost will be paradise that is regained and restored. And it all, all of these threads run through Bethlehem. Pretty awesome, right? Deep stuff. You're like, man, that, that's more than I've ever thought about when it comes to Christmas. Jesus is restoring man's status. But that's not all. Let's move to another vantage point overlooking the canyon. Secondly, Here's another glorious truth that shows us what Jesus did that calls us to worship. Jesus came at Christmas to receive us as sons. Verses 10 down to 13 will make this point. Because Jesus came into this world as a human being, that means in a sense that we as his people have an essential brotherhood with Jesus. That's incredible. Making us sons of God, receiving us who are sinners as sons. Now, how does he do this? Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, it became him. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Here's the big dilemma. Back in the opening verses of Hebrews, we find out that this Jesus we're talking about is very God of very God. How on earth can he suffer? Look look back in verse 2 of of Hebrews 1. God has in these last days spoken unto us by son, whom he has anointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The Jesus we're talking about is God. He has the, 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 the entirety of the divine attributes. He's not less than God. He's not part of God. He is God. So how is it fitting for him who is God to suffer? Verse 10 is somewhat of a complicated verse because now we begin talking about God the Father. So it was fitting for God the Father, and here's the whole thought. It's fitting for God the Father to perfect God the Son through suffering. Okay, that's, That's sort of the grammar of this. And in the process, bring many sons unto glory. Let's, let's unpack this a little bit. This is, a, this is a complicated verse, and we can go some wrong ways here, so let's be very careful with how we walk through this. Jesus comes at Christmas to receive us as sons. And we get that phrase there, to bring many sons unto glory. By the way, do you notice that phrase in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery? To take us who are sinners and make us sons. Make us family and then lead us on the pathway to glory. He accomplishes, accomplishes this through suffering. That's what he's saying. He's going to perfect the, the captain, the leader, the pioneer of their salvation through suffering. So he comes at Christmas to receive us as sons and he does this through suffering. So it was fitting for him, that is God, notice how God is described, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. In other words, God the Father, okay, we're talking about God the Father, and this is also true of God the Son, but specifically, he's talking about the God the Father, is sovereign. 
Jesus' suffering fulfilled the Father's sovereign plan. Everything exists by God, he's the creator, and for God. He's the Lord of all things, and it is proper and appropriate for him to carry out salvation however he sees fit. Our salvation through the suffering of the Son of God is planned by the sovereign God of the universe. He orders all things and does all of his will in heaven and in earth. That's what that phrase, by whom and for whom are all things. In bringing many sons into glory, okay, to, to bring us who are sinners who are in the midst of this messy world one day into glory, Jesus' suffering, we're, we're told here, leads us to glory. The Father's plan here is to bring sons to glory. We, okay, here's, the, here's the problem. None of us are born into this world as sons of God. We're born into this world as rebels, as outside of the family, as enemies. So how is it that we who are enemies can be led on this new exodus, not into Canaan, but into glory? Through the suffering of Jesus. By the way, did you notice this one word in bringing many sons to glory? Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is not being stingy here. He's saying, no, I, I, there's going to be a great host of who will one day stand before the Lamb and before the throne and say salvation to our God, Revelation 7 and verse 9. And while it is the Father who is doing this, okay, he's the subject, it became him, that is God the Father, to bring sons to glory. He's doing this by the captain of their salvation. That word captain could be translated our pioneer, right? So he is leading the way for this great train of sons who are redeemed. He's blazed the trail to glory. Think about what a pioneer is. They're like, hey, we're, gonna, we're all going to go out west. And so somebody goes out and cuts the trail over the Cumberland Gap. And then other people follow them along. They're the, sort of the first ones to go. To so say, Jesus Christ is the pioneer of our salvation. He's the one who leads the way. So he comes to this world as a man. He passes through suffering. He goes through death. He is resurrected. He enters glory. Guess what the plan is for us as his children? We go through suffering, we pass through death, and one day we'll be resurrected, right? We're going to enter glory following the footsteps of Jesus. So he cuts the path, he passes through the suffering into glory, and he leads us there. Now here's the, the most challenging thing in verse 10, and actually one of the more challenging things in, in all the Bible in my view. How is it that Jesus, who is the express image of God, definitionally he's perfect, how can he be made perfect through suffering? How can someone who's already perfect be perfected? Right? We want to be careful here because we could sort of say, well, that means moral improvement. That means that there was sin in Jesus that had to be sort of dealt with before he could do this. Let me say this very emphatically. Perfecting the son through suffering cannot refer to moral improvement in any way. Jesus was sinless. Just over the page in Hebrews 4 and verse 15, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7 and verse 26, for such an high priest became us, was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. So Jesus is sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for uh, he knew no sin. Right? So Jesus is utterly sinless, utterly perfect, utterly holy. So when it says he's made perfect through suffering, we're not saying that, well, Jesus had some sin that God had to kind of clean up through this process of suffering. There's another way that that word perfect, another sense of that word. We think perfect as being moral improvement. The idea here is the idea of completion, of being qualified for something. Hebrews 5 and verses 8 and 9 gives us, the, gives us a similar idea. Though he were a son, yet 
learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Here's the idea. He completed the Father's will. He didn't fulfill the Father's will in one instant. It wasn't like Jesus came to this earth and the first instant he was you know, born in the manger, he did everything that was accomplished. Rather, it was accomplished over the 33 years of his earthly life. It was attained as he went to the cross and as he died for us. So he became complete by fulfilling the Father's will step by step. He did not obey in a single instant, but in every instant. Okay, that's the idea here. And ultimately, the suffering that's being referred to here is the suffering of the cross. So he completes the Father's will by going through the ultimate gauntlet of suffering, which is the cross, and in so doing, he brings us to glory as sons. Okay, rich thought, right? This is a lot more involved in being big hole in the ground. Right? Sometimes we come to church being like, I don't want to think, I just want to sort of feel stuff. The Bible calls us to think and to, to wrestle with and to grasp these depths of, uh, of glory and, and of truth. So he goes through suffering. His incarnation means a genuine identification with us. But here's the awesome thing that sort of just dropped like a little bomb into the text that comes out of nowhere, is that we are called sons. Isn't that awesome? Jesus, through his incarnation, goes through this path of suffering, completes the Father's will, and in so doing, makes us sons who are going to be led to glory. That's not our natural status, folks. We, we are, are naturally enemies of God, and here we are called sons. Now, verse 11 goes further on. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So he receives us through his suffering. His suffering is what leads many sons to glory. But it's not just his suffering, it's his sanctification. Now, the word sanctification is to, to make holy, to set apart. In Hebrews, the, the, the word can sometimes refer to that progressive, being more like Jesus, or it can be the idea of that decisive act of being cleansed at our conversion. I think that's what's, being in, what's in view here. So he goes a step further. He dies for us, and then he makes us holy through his blood. He deals with our sin. But notice the point here. The one who sanctifies, that is, okay, that's Jesus. And those who are sanctified, that's us, are all of one. Of one what? Of one what? Well, the whole point here has been about the fact that Jesus became a man. He comes into this world, he enters into this world as a man in solidarity with us. And we're from one, we're we're, we're descended from Adam, in a sense, right? And so here Jesus comes into our humanity, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, this is pretty sweet. Here's God the Father, and his eternal Son is... God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And then we are adopted into God's family, which is what makes us brethren, brothers to Jesus. You're like, man, that seems sort of heretical. It's what the text says. He's not ashamed to call you and me brothers. He comes in, he takes on a real humanity, and he calls us brothers. And because we have been adopted into God's family, we're like younger little brothers to Jesus. By the way, Romans 8.29 makes, makes something clear. He is the firstborn among many brethren. So he's here, and then we're, we're, we're here. There is a major difference in status. So don't turn this around and say, well, if Jesus is a brother, that means I'm equal to Jesus. I can do anything Jesus does. There's some charismatic theology that will, will make that argument. I can go around and just declare and heal because I'm a brother of Jesus. Adopted, lesser status. He's the eternal. We're the adopted ones. Nonetheless, a real relationship, which means this God's our Father, and we have access to him. This is incredible. Because of Christmas, we are received as sons. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. 
Now, we give him a ton of reason to be ashamed of us. Remember when you were a kid? How many of you had younger, younger siblings? Okay, how many of you had younger siblings that occasionally you were like, I don't want to be associated with them. Okay, they're doing weird, annoying stuff now, and I, you drop me off over here and I'll walk so no one knows that that's the same car that I rode in. Um, Jesus does not look at us that way. He doesn't look at us as the sniveling, annoying, whining younger siblings that we really are. He's not being like, yeah, they're in the family, but I'd rather not be associated. No, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Think of how awesome that truth is. He's not ashamed of us, even though we're annoying, bratty, needy, whiny little brothers. He's not ashamed of us, even though we do things that would bring disrepute on the family name. He does not disown us. He does not run away from us. Rather, he receives us. Now, in the Gospels, there's just a couple of places where Jesus calls his disciples brothers. And you know when it is? Both cases, it is after the resurrection. Jesus has gone through the cross. Think about what happened before that time. Just a few nights before, all the disciples got ashamed of Jesus and ran off. Peter denies him three times. All of them are fearful. None of them will stand with him in the moment of trial. They go through the greatest failure of their entire lives. Jesus dies on the cross completely alone. He's buried. Three days later, he rises again, and he tells the, the women at the tomb, go tell my brothers and Peter that I'm risen and I go before them unto Galilee. Even in, in the light and the shadow of their greatest failure, he calls them brothers. Listen, the fact that he calls us brothers is not because of our virtue, but because of his victory. He dies on the cross, he wins the victory, and he now says, y'all are family because of what I've accomplished. It's not based on our standing. How often do you feel like, oh man, I've not been a super good Christian today. God must be embarrassed of me. Now listen, we ought to do those things that please the Father. And there's a real sense in which our obedience is pleasing in his sight, But listen, our standing before God is not based on what we do. It is based on what Jesus has done for us. And sometimes we shrink back from God being like, oh man, I've not been real faithful in this area. I need to kind of just punish myself. I can't pray right now. I can't read my Bible right now. I can't enjoy the benefits because I've been bad. Well, guess what? Jesus bore the punishment for you, beloved. Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers. And he backs this up through some Old Testament quotes. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. Look at verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto the church in the midst of, the church, uh, of my brethren. In the midst of the church, I will sing praise unto thee. This quote comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one of the clearest messianic psalms in the entire scripture. It begins with this phrase, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's a psalm that I believe Jesus himself quoted on the cross. Not just that first verse, I believe he quoted the entire thing. The first 21 verses declare that the psalmist, and in this case it's actually Jesus with an incredibly clear description of crucifixion, is crying out for divine deliverance. He's announcing that he has been completely abandoned by God. He is suffering all of the, the agonies that sin requires. He's suffering the punishment that we deserve. Then verse 22, there's a sudden change in tone in the psalm. It goes from suffering to victory. I think verse 22 is anticipating the empty tomb. So here he is now as a vindicated sufferer who's gone through the suffering, has been vindicated by God, and here again is still the voice of the Messiah speaking, saying, I will declare thy name, that is God's name, unto my brethren in the midst of the church I will sing praise unto thee. So here's what is incredible. Here is Jesus, the resurrected, victorious Messiah, saying, I will declare the name of God, the name of my Father, to my brothers. 
Think about what Jesus did in the Gospels to his disciples, declared who God really was, telling them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then saying, in the midst of the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, I will sing praise unto thee. In a very real sense, when we gather to praise, Jesus is in our midst, the one who is leading us in our worship. If I were to announce to you saying, next week, uh, instead of Chris leading singing, as good of a job he does leading singing, Jesus himself is going to show up and he's going to lead our worship. If Jesus were here today and he says, I want you to sing with all of your hearts to God the Father, we would all be like, yeah, let's do that. Let's let's sing with joy. Let's have enthusiasm. We would do that. The reality, according to this text, is that happens every Sunday. We ought to worship as if Jesus himself were the one leading our worship because he is. What what a mockery we make of that truth when we come and we're like, I don't like this song. Mumble through it. Scripture reading, I'm going to think about something else. I'm going to scroll through Twitter while this is going on. Or, man, I was up a little late last night. I don't think I'm going to come today. If Jesus were here, you would be like, man, I better be here. Well, guess what he is. But the point of this text is to say he is identifying the church as his brethren. God the Father, God the Son, here we are adopted into the family of God. Now we get another couple of quotes. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me comes from Isaiah. Can't delve into the context too much, but here's the point. Messiah is bringing sinners into God's family. Because of Christmas, you and I are welcomed into God's family. Because he came and entered the human family, we as sinners can be brought into the divine family. Absolutely incredible. Because he embraced a human nature, we one day will embrace eternal glory. Because of Christmas, right? This is more the angels and it's a big hole in the ground. No, this is the Grand Canyon. We look at it from another perspective He's restoring our lost position that Adam lost. He is receiving sinners as sons into his family. We have this relationship with God now. Thirdly, Jesus came at Christmas to rescue us. So he came to restore us, to receive us. But verse 14 and 15 tells us that he comes to rescue us. Here's a third glorious truth as we peer over the rim of the canyon to the depths of the divine truth that, that causes us to really worship and admire and see the glory of Jesus. Verse 14, look at this with me. For as much then as the children, okay, that's continuing on the idea that the sons that are being led to glory, the brethren who are in the church, for as much then as the children, the ones he came to save, are partakers of flesh and blood. The, the word order in the Greek is actually blood and flesh. He also, he also himself likewise took part of the same. It's okay, because we're made of flesh and blood, because we are humans, he also partook of human nature. Now, a little note here. We are partakers of flesh and blood in sort of a permanent sense, but he came decisively to partake of the same. There's a slight difference in the tense there. His was a, a temporary, ours is a, this is where we live. This is one of the richest explanations of why Jesus came. We could preach a whole sermon just on verses 14 and 15. That was the original plan, as I said, but so much more here, right? Why did God become a man? Why did God the Son enter this world? Because we share in flesh and blood, he did too. By the way, notice that little word himself. Look at verse 14. He also himself. It's it's emphatic. It's not God when God came to redeem you and me, he didn't send an angel. Be like, hey, Gabriel, go go rescue those lousy sinners for me. Thank you so much. I don't want to get my hands dirty. He doesn't do that. He doesn't raise up a prophet among men to say, try harder. He doesn't come along and say, 
hey, let's get some priests along here to offer some more sacrifices. He says, my son is going to go, and he's going to be the prophet, the final word for me. My son is going to go, and he will be the great high priest and the sacrifice. My son will come not just declaring who I am, but embodying who I am. Now, here's the argument of verse 14. That, okay, look at the middle of the verse. So he himself took part of the same. In order that, here's a purpose statement. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil, second purpose. And deliver, that is rescue, liberate them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He came to rescue us, and here's how he rescued us. He rescued us by destroying the devil's domination over death. Right? He's coming to rescue us. We're human beings. We die I'm going to come be a human being and I'm going to die as well. And in so doing, I'm going to destroy Satan's dominion over death. He had to become a man so he could die as a man. We understand this God cannot die. right? It's impossible for the eternal God to die. So he takes on a human nature, comes into this world so that he can die. Technically speaking, it's not God who dies at the cross. It is the person of Jesus, the, the human nature so by dying and rising again, he invalidates Satan's power over death. You see, Satan uses the power of death to enslave people. Now, we know originally, and ultimately, it is God who wields the sentence of death. But Satan uses this to keep us subject to bondage. Look at verse 15. He, he, he came into this world also to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Satan uses fear as one of his greatest instruments to enslave sinners and keep sinners in a place of being subservient to him. So Jesus, he rescues us because he destroys the devil's domination over death. He defeats death. Satan's head is crushed. Satan's power is, is, is destroyed. But he also frees us. He liberates us from the fear of death. If there's one fear that is universal, it's ultimately the fear of dying. One writer put it this way. He says, our lives are like the unfolding of a murder mystery in which we ourselves turn out to be the victim. Right? We go to other people's funerals, and there's something that happens in our mind. Actually, psychologists have studied this. We think, oh, that's such a tragedy that happened to them. But we, we push out of our minds that one day it'll be us. You know, the, the irony is expressed in what Yogi Berra said. Go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, if you don't go to other people's funerals, they won't come to yours. Uh, the fact is we all will have a funeral one day. We will all die one day. This is a, a reality. and we, we, The fear sometimes leads us to ignore that and pretend that we'll live forever and pretend that when it comes, we'll, we'll handle it. We're terrified by the pain of dying. We tremble at the vast unknown of what's after that. Nobody's come back to tell us what it's like. We fear what lies beyond the grave and what the scripture tells us is judgment and everlasting punishment for all, for all who do not know Jesus. And this fear enslaves us. This is what keeps people enslaved to false religions. False religions sort of offer a, a carrot on the end of a stick that you can't quite ever reach of just maybe we can give you assurance for what happens on the other side of the grave. If you go through these sacraments, if you get baptized, if you give enough to the church, just maybe God will let you into heaven. Or if you go travel to Mecca and if you go pray to Allah five times a day facing a certain direction, just maybe you'll make it. Christianity does not offer us a just maybe. It offers us assurance. It offers us the reality that, no, through the one who conquered death, if you are united to him by faith, it's not a just maybe. It's a certainty. You can be delivered. And so fear no longer has to hold us captive. Now, in a sense, we do. 
we don't look forward to the process of dying. But as Christians, we need not fear death itself. We need not fear what lies on the other side. For the Christian, death is simply the doorway into eternal glory. So Jesus has conquered the grave. He has liberated us from this enslaving fear. He's redeemed us from sin because sin is the true prison keeper of the grave. And the keys have been handed over to him. I love what is said in Revelation. Jesus says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death and hell. It's not the grim reaper. It's Jesus who has the keys to death and to the grave. He he came to rescue us. Incredible implications. If you're one of these Christians to whom the, the, the letter to the Hebrews was written, you're facing persecution and all of these things, to know that Jesus conquered the grave is incredibly hope-giving. Why would we fear anything else? But finally, this final glorious truth. All of this, of course, is true because of Christmas. He becomes a man so he can die, so he can deliver us. Finally, we learn that Jesus came at Christmas to represent us. And I think this perhaps summarizes everything else that we have said. He came at Christmas to not only restore us, not only to receive us, not only to rescue us, but to represent us. In order to do those other things, he had to be our genuine representative. Verse 16, for verily, for truly, for indeed, for obviously, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. You'll notice in your your Bible, if you have a King James, as I'm using, you'll see the, the words, him the nature of are in italics. That means those aren't in the Greek. The literal rendering here is he, verily, he took not hold of angels, but he took hold of the seed of Abraham. The idea is sort of grabbing someone, grabbing onto them so you can rescue them, right? Somebody is like leaning, falling off the roof, and you grab onto them and you pull them up. So the sense here is he does not help, he does not save angels, but the seed of Abraham, those who have faith and walk in the footsteps of Abraham. Wherefore, verse 17, in all things it behooved him, it was necessary to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. What kind of representative is Jesus? Well, he is a qualified representative, right? He's, got a, he's a qualified representative. One of the things that happens in our democratic republic, we, we elect representatives. One of the things about the representative that you, you elect, they have to be from your district, Right? So the representative we have, Congressman Jerry Carl, he's not from Oregon, but he lives here in Mobile. He has to meet certain qualifications to represent this district. For Jesus to be our priestly representative, he's got to be one of us, right? And not just kind of like us, not just resemble us. The text says it was necessary for him to be made like unto his brethren. The sense here is made like his brethren in all things, in every respect, Sometimes we get this misunderstanding that Jesus' incarnation, he's just kind of got this like shell of humanity. He's got a human body, but all of the insides are divine. He's got a, human, a divine mind and a divine will and divine emotions and divine power, just kind of just shielded like a, like a costume. That, that's not the idea at all. He has a full and genuine human body and human soul. He, uh, Luke 2 says that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In his real humanity, he had a human mind, he had a human will, he had human emotions, he had a human body, he grew tired, he hungered, he thirsted, he got headaches, he got sick. 
And all of this qualified him to be our representative, to be a real human. By the way, all of that without sin. Sin is not an essential part of humanity. It is an aberration. It is a perversion of what God created us to be. He is our priest. Hebrews 5 says a genuine priest has to be able to have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself is compassed with infirmity. Jesus is precisely that. Not beset by sin, but he experienced genuine humanity, making him qualified to be our priestly representative. Now notice what verse 17 also says. He's not only a qualified representative, but he's also a merciful representative. That in all things he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Now what does a priest do? A priest represents humanity to God. Just as a prophet represents God to humanity. Jesus represents his people before God. He's the one who stands in our place as our priestly representative, and he is merciful. I love how that term is put first. He is merciful, and he is gentle towards his people. Mercy means that he is moved by compassion towards those who are weak. Mercy means towards the sinful, he has pity. Towards those who are sick, he is moved with genuine concern. But it's more than just a feeling of, oh man, I'm sorry that there's bad things happening. Mercy is more than that. Mercy is then acting to alleviate that. And we see Jesus doing that in his earthly ministry. He comes across people who are lepers, those who are sick, those who are are diseased. And what does he do? He heals them. And then he encounters you and me in our sin. And he doesn't just sit there and say, well, I'm just going to sit here and judge you. No, he goes to the cross for us, unleashing the grace of God so that we can be forgiven. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's the vehicle of the mercy of God. But he's not just a faithful or a merciful high priest. He is a faithful high priest. He's merciful towards us and faithful towards God. Now, faithful means that he discharges everything that he was meant to do. Don't get the idea that Jesus came and sort of cut the corners of God's standards. Kind of like, hey, let me lower the bar to make it easier for people to make it in. No, he met every requirement of justice. He carries out every promise. He fulfilled every command. He satisfied every demand of the law on our behalf as our representative, primarily to make reconciliation for the people. That word reconciliation is the word that refers to propitiation, to him satisfying God's wrath against our sin. Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice, satisfying the wrath that our sin deserves. Then verse 18 concludes with this. He is a sympathetic representative. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, that is help, that is aid them that are tempted. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus went through the experiences that you and I go through. I mentioned those ones of deprivation. But he actually faced the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. He faced the constant attacks of his enemies. He faced the ultimate test of the cross and he went through it. If nothing is more distasteful to holiness than sin, then nothing is more painful to the Son of God than being confronted with sin. His testing was one of profound suffering. Now, what does this mean for us? Jesus suffered, and he conquered. Jesus went through pain, and he endured. And that means that he is able to sympathize with you and me when we go through the same. 
When you're facing temptation, you're like, I don't know if I can hold out against this temptation any longer. Jesus is saying, I went 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness facing the temptation of Satan. Now, big difference. Our temptation comes from our sin nature. He had none. Nonetheless, confronted with that temptation. Just across the page in Hebrews 4, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Now, what's the implication? Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. What does this mean for us? He is ready and able to help. Now, you know, there's some people who say, I'm here to help you, but you know, they don't really understand. Right? You're going through a rough time, and someone comes along, I'll be here to listen, but you're like, you've never been through what I've been through. It was said of one prominent pastor who was harsh and overbearing in his leadership. He is harsh because he has never suffered. Right? People who have never suffered what you have suffered can be very judgmental. Well, you should do it this way and you should grieve that way. But those who have grieved, those who have gone through things, can be very, very sympathetic. And Jesus, since he has gone through suffering, is very sympathetic. Alexander McLaren writes this, Comfort drops but coldly from lips that have never uttered a sigh or a groan. The comfort's meaningless from someone who's never gone through something. He goes on, And for our poor human hearts, it's not enough to have a merciful God far off in the heavens. We need a Christ who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities ere we can come boldly to the throne of grace, assured that they're, of their finding grace in time of need. To that I say, Amen. This beckons us to come. To come with all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of our weakness. You see, because of Christmas, we peer over this canyon of truth. We see that Jesus restores us. He receives us. He rescues us. He represents us. This is one of the most breathtaking truths in all of Scripture. It's not just a big hole in the ground. It's not just eh, Christmas. It is a grand canyon. If this is our Savior, who is so glorious and majestic and supremely attractive, we must come to him and worship. Now, as we conclude here today, I... I beckon you to do just that. This closing song we sing is not just a time to be like, oh, let me grab my stuff, get my keys, get ready to bolt out the door. I want you to pause. I want you to chew on this. Take this home with you today. Meditate on this and actually take some time to be like, this is awesome. Here's the second implication. We should come boldly. Let us draw near. So will you come? Will you come? Father, may we come to you boldly, ready to receive your mercy and your help through your Son, Jesus Christ.